Hello and welcome to the Dynamic Leaders Podcast, part of the Talent 409 Leadership Academy Network. I am your host, Colin Cernelia, and thank you so much for joining us today. Please head over to talent409.com to learn more about how we can help your team or organization with their leadership and culture development. This podcast is available on Spotify, YouTube, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and wherever else you listen to your favorite podcast. Plus, don't forget, you can now play this podcast on any Amazon-enabled device. Just ask Alexa, play the Dynamic Leaders Podcast. Getting Dynamic Leaders with Colin Treniglia from Apple Podcasts. Before this episode begins, please consider taking a minute and leave a rating and review. Doing this really does help us grow the show, and you can get featured for your review on a future episode. Okay, and on to my featured conversation today for episode 115 of the Dynamic Leaders Podcast. Today, you will hear my talk with Anika Oric. Anika is the author of The Incredible Women of the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. In addition to her writing, Anika is also an illustrator and designer. Quick note before this podcast episode begins, Anika and I had to take a quick little break from our first session of recording as she had a little bit of a tornado scare and you hear us reference that in the beginning of our second session. So that's the context behind that story, a little funny beginning to everything. But throughout this conversation, you will hear topics that include the excitement of getting to use her creative powers to publish an amazing book about the only girls professional baseball league in this country's history, how growing up in the Bay Area of California helped her grow to love the sport of baseball. You'll hear about how Anika overcomes challenges in the creative world and why discovering yourself as a creative person is a never-ending process, why it's important to find your voice to tell stories even if they are ones not about you, how humor has acted as a source of inspiration in her work and in her life, and how if you find work where you enjoy the challenges, then you know you are doing something worthwhile and meaningful. There are so many amazing points throughout this conversation, including the hilarious story of Anika grinding early on in her career and drawing countless naked people (laughs) so that she could learn skills related to drawing. So this is a super fun conversation. Anika loves baseball just as much as I do. And her book is really an amazing story that highlights a really incredible time in American history. She is a fellow Peanuts and Charles Schultz fan, and I'm so excited for you to hear this conversation So let's dive right in and let's discover our talent altitude. Here is my talk with Anika Orr. Okay, everyone, welcome back to the Dynamic Leaders Podcast. Today, my guest with me is Anika Orr. Anika, thank you so much for joining the show. Thank you, Colin. Thanks for having me. 
Absolutely. We just had a little bit of a weather scare. And although people won't actually get to hear that on this podcast, we are both recovering from that a little bit. So if it takes us a little while to ease into it, that's why it'll give you a little bit of context. But Anika, I want to give you an opportunity as I do with all of my guests to tell the listening audience a little bit about yourself. So please tell us, who are you? Well, my name is Anika Orok, and I'm not at all used to tornado warnings. I'm from California, <laughs> which is what just happened. <laughs> but uh, I am a, uh, an illustrator, a cartoonist. I'm a writer. Uh, I do some humor, humorous work and consultation. And yeah, let's see. I've probably had every creative job under the sun just to stay creative. But this is by far the most fun I've had creating this book. Yeah, absolutely. So were you always a creative wonder? Like, did you know that you wanted to do something, whether it was writing or drawing or something along those lines when you got a little bit older? Was that part of your childhood? Oh, yeah. A part of my childhood and I guess just a part of my consciousness. I don't think I ever imagined myself doing anything else. Um, When I was a kid, I really wanted to – I always – loved drawing. I mean, I've been drawing for as long as I can remember, um, and making my own little books and stories. And I visited Disney world for the first time when I was, I think like 10 and saw the animation department at work behind a glass window and just thought, Oh, okay, that's what I'm going to (laughs) do. And that was what I decided I wanted to do for a long time. But as I got older, you know, I, I worked on the conceptual end of animation for a while, but just sort of evolved into telling my own stories. And here I'm telling somebody else's stories or other people's stories. But um, as my interests in history and in baseball progressed, it just sort of all fit together into one, one nice little package. (laughs) Sure. Sure. So So we'll talk about the love for baseball here in just a minute, but I want to stick with the creative side because I realize just not from, or excuse me, just from my own personal experience, but also just reading accounts of other people, whether they're musicians or authors like yourself about how difficult it really is to not just make it. Like, I I think we need to maybe get away from the whole notion of making it in something, but putting something together that you are really proud of and that takes a lot of time, takes a lot of effort. And I just think it's so different from a lot of the work that's out there. So I'd love for you to be able to tell us a little bit about how you've been able to overcome some of those challenges in your career and be able to push through to the point where you are today. Sure. Well, it's interesting. I think it, I think the process of discovering those things and learning those things about yourself and a career in the arts is kind of never ending, but I will say that just um, learning the important things came a little bit later for me, but I think inherently they come later for a lot of people. I think to understand where your inherent value is and what you have to offer and what you have to say, it's just something that takes practice. You have have to exercise your voice, so to speak, in, in art or whatever it is that you do. So while technical skill is important, you know, when you go to school for these things and you draw, I mean, I don't even know how many naked people in their 50s and 60s <laughs> I've drawn in my life. And I remember even thinking, like, is this really what I need to be doing to get where I want to go? But the answer is yes. It's just that you are essentially developing muscle memory. And then when style and um, your voice 
comes along, that is just life. And then you have then a skill and a filter through which to express the things that you've learned through life. So, you know, I think the interesting challenge has always been to find that voice and to find a style or find stories that you want to tell or you think are worth telling and not trying to fit yourself into what you think everybody else wants to hear, everybody else wants to see or read or what is timely or what style people are into or what art directors want to see. Or, you know, so many young artists have this question of what should be going into my portfolio. And there's, there's merit to that to a degree, but really it's, you know, it's also a thing that people want to emulate their heroes. So you may copy a style for a while. All of those things are part of it. But I think you reach a point where you realize that doing what you do and what you love is the thing that matters most because that's what comes through. And that's what gives something the real pop. That's what makes it stand out. Everybody wants to know, how do I stand out? You inherently stand out. And to realize that, oh, my love of baseball isn't a distraction from my art, I can use my art to express my love of baseball or the tell the stories in baseball. And, you know, it's almost like the more specific and weird you get, the better. It's not, it's not a hindrance. <laughs> it's actually what helps you stand out. And we're so individual in the way we think and see things that it just, it will inherently be you. And that human element is what people connect with. And I think I wish there was a way to impart that on people as they're in the learning process of their craft that just really paying attention to yourself and your experience is um, is something worth listening to and not trying to fit yourself into something else. Because you'll eventually come back around to this, hopefully, where you're yourself. And just <laughs> you may as well just start going that, that direction in the first place. But Right. Yeah, so that was kind of the bigger challenge for me all along. And then entering specifically into this project, there were all kinds of challenges, but they were fun. You know, it's like, like solving a mystery or I don't know. It was like the fun kind of challenges where even on the worst days, it was like, yeah, this is still awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and it's really, it's kind of a, feels like a once in a lifetime thing when you get a project that you just don't get tired of. I never woke up and was like, oh my God, more women's baseball. <laughs> no, you know, I just loved every second of it. So um, I feel very, very fortunate to have had something like that. And hopefully I'll get more of that now. But in my mind, that's making it, you know, I mean, of course I would love to have enough money to have three homes in different countries or whatever, but really just the moment people start hiring you or allowing you to do projects because you're doing them and that's it because it's your style or your idea or your, you know, to me, that's like striking gold when I'm not being asked to draw something in somebody else's style or write in somebody else's voice. And I'm actually making money doing it my own way. That's my idea of making it. Yeah. That's gotta be the ultimate. And before we fully pivot to baseball and to women's baseball specifically, from broader terms, when it comes to finding your voice, is that something that you could even describe to people? Like, it seems like you've identified it, but if somebody were to ask you, what's your voice? How do you write? How do you draw? How do you go about all these artistic ventures? Is that something you can describe to people? And is there a way that you being able to articulate that can help other people find their own vo voice? 
gosh, you know, um, that's a good question. And it is a very difficult thing to articulate because it's not necessarily tangible and there isn't really one way to do it. I think there's everybody's path or means of getting there is different, but I will say that, for example, if you want to write, uh, there's just no way you could possibly even venture into writing anything worthwhile if you don't read. And I guess the same thing goes for art. You, you can't really be drawing something uh, interesting or telling a story with what you're doing if you're not drawing all the time. So I guess there's something to be said for the, the 10,000 hours theory of just working and chipping and doing, and that may involve you can't really necessarily help but emulating, you know, my work, uh, my, my illustration work sometimes gets compared to other artists. And I never take that as, um, you know, I only take it as a compliment if it's a good artist, (laughs) (laughs) but, um, but I think, you know, and people ask how hard I tried to emulate that artist and, and I never tried, but I think you just can't help sometimes if it's some, someone that you really admired, Um, their work is going to find its way into your work. But I think the best way to finding your voice or what you want to say, at at least for me in my own experience, I don't know. I I don't know that I'm qualified to direct people into doing that, but for me, it was just getting out there and exploring the the things that I loved. So for example, um, not really knowing exactly where to go, but I ended up taking a class um, through the encouragement or just suggestion of a couple of my friends um, who worked at Pixar animation studios. There was uh, a place called the animation collaborative across the street from Pixar, where a lot of Pixar people taught classes. And the thing that I went to learn, I I guess I learned, but I learned something completely different, which was that I wasn't behind the curve getting started later, or I wasn't missing out because I didn't go to Cal arts the most prominent school, or I wasn't, I wasn't lacking the things that I thought I was lacking that made me feel like I was never going to really reach the place I wanted to reach. I just was paying attention to the wrong things. And through that class, I started to realize the, the, the ways in which I have value and they were completely different than the ways that other people had value. And there was so much value to the way I had done things, the school I had gone to, the interests I had, the things I was inspired by the way they found their way into my work and it just shifted my way of thinking. So I think that while finding your style or your voice does require a lot of work, there's no shortcuts. There just aren't. People are always looking for shortcuts and there are none, but I think it also requires a shift in perspective and perception. So where you're constantly looking at where you didn't reach, maybe just turn around and look at the way that you came and realize that it has a lot of value and then just start applying that to what you're doing and using that as your selling points, not as the things you're trying to hide from people, but as the things that you want people to know that that's what makes you so different. And then when you realize that nobody is standing there waiting to, (laughs) waiting to tear you down for it, you gain a little bit of confidence in that. And then that confidence just builds on itself and you can be proud of the way that you've done things. And then confidence begets confidence and experience begets experience, I think. And and then you just kind of roll from there. It makes so much sense. And I know that I said we're going to pivot and I promise we are, but you've mentioned a couple of times people that have influenced you and maybe were role models, sort of speak. Are there specific people that 
you did really look up to when you were younger that have influenced any of the work that you did or that you've done or that you're doing? (laughs) Yeah, oh, sure. Oh, there's a lot of people and certainly artists and cartoonists, but um, not necessarily. I I think one of the biggest influences on me was my grandfather uh, or is my grandfather and my family in general, because we all have a little bit of him in our voices, whether, you know, whatever our craft may be. But he was a cartoonist and a writer, a daily columnist. Um, But his style was just so, well, in my opinion, funny as hell, but very witty, (laughs) but also a lot of warmth. He was never, um, he never used a a cutting remark or a put down as a source of wit or or an example of wit. He was a conversationalist. He always made you feel welcome. He never spoke at you. He spoke with you, even if it was through his words. And just his way of being was always kind of inspirational to me. I always found that very welcoming and inviting. And you see that in, in, I guess, in the lines of some of my favorite visual artists, like maybe like I love Charles Schultz. I love peanuts because it's just so simple and there's, there's no frills. It's very, there's a, a real economic use (laughs) economy of line, I guess is what you would say. Very sparing, but, but very expressive. So I think a lot of my heroes that, you know, from childhood until now have always been sort of good at that, where they say a lot with not a whole lot. Like um, Al Hirschfeld is, is one, that line, just that the way he uses a line and what he does with it is just like amazing. But I've also been very inspired by, <laughs> I guess it's a little beyond my age maybe, but comedy uh, comedy writers like Carl Reiner and uh, Mel Brooks and uh, a lot of old comedians and um, cartoonists. I just love the way it's just that sort of simple one punch, you know, I just love the way they do comedy and I've always been very inspired by humor. So yeah, I guess that's, that's part of it. It goes on and on and on, but I won't <laughs> sit here and give a list of all my favorite artists. <laughs> no, but I think but, that yeah. gives you or gives our listeners at least a window into not only people who influence you and things that you enjoy, but just who you are, that you're more than just a writer. Like you enjoy comedy, you enjoy a peanuts. I'm a huge peanuts fan my, myself. So I can certainly appreciate that. And I think it just opens up this whole window for people to see like who you actually are and that can influence your writing or it can influence your drawings in certain ways. But at the end of the day, like you had said earlier, it comes down to just being true to yourself and really leaning into that. So it's just cool to see how it all connects and just makes it all one big thing there. But I want to pivot us to start talking a little bit about your current project, your biggest project, I guess, to date. And I want to figure out where this love for baseball started. Was it something that, again, was a part of your childhood or? Yeah, definitely. Well, uh, as I I mentioned, my grandfather, um, I spent a lot of time with my grandparents and uh, when I was a kid. My grandfather was from Napa. My grandmother moved to San Francisco when she was a young teenager, and they both loved baseball. And um, so I just grew up hearing stories about, like, the San Francisco Seals and when the Giants came to the West Coast. And my grandpa was also just a lover of stories. So he always had really great stories about these characters throughout baseball history. 
and he wrote columns about several of them. Um, but the baseball game was always on, you know, at their house. It was either on the TV or the radio, or my grandma always had it on in the car uh, if we were driving somewhere. And so the sounds of baseball were were what drew me in. It, it, that's my first love, you know, before I ever even saw a game, I just loved having it around and it just reminded me of being at their house and it reminded me of family if we were having a barbecue or a birthday party if there was a baseball game happening it was on in some form (laughs) in some room somewhere and then as I got a little bit older I just um I started paying attention more and I just started following it a bit more and I tried playing it once in high school (laughs) well softball because that was all that was available at my school but I fared better in individual sports. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I was not coordinated enough to know who, where, what. I, I could follow it with my eyeballs, but when you put me in it, I'll just do better on my own. <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm like one of those daydreaming little league kids that's standing in left field, like examining a flower <laughs> pretty soon. Like, oh, here comes the ball. I did that, but I was like 18. So um, I, I just i am better at observing baseball. So uh, I moved to uh, into the city of San Francisco right after 9-11 actually so that was a again kind of a weird apocalyptic time but it was shortly after the new ballpark had been built in San Francisco so um the next the following season after I had moved there uh, I was able to start actually going to games on a regular basis and then it just was that was it I was so I was uh, 20, 21, um, and everything that I had ever loved about baseball just completely like grew and compounded, and <laughs> just being there it was like a whole new experience. So, yeah, and what a yeah. what a good time to start going to those Giants games. If I remember correctly, two thousand two was they didn't win the World Series, but they went to the World Series that year. Yeah, that was the first. Oh man, I was so invested in that series, and I had started working at a restaurant and bar in the marina and thankfully everybody there was pretty into it also but yeah 2002 was my first uh, I took myself to my first um, I had been to games at Candlestick with my grandparents but you know whenever I had a day off I just took I bought a bleacher ticket which it kills me I feel like such an old lady being like when I was young bleacher seats were 10 bucks and on Tuesdays they were eight you know but I did I would get myself like an eight or ten dollar bleacher seat and just take myself. It was my favorite thing to do on my days off. And, um, and it just happened to be such a great year. And we all watched the series from the bar where I worked and it was just such a fun, it was the real baseball experience in a baseball town. Uh, my first, you know, being an adult out on my own, you know, with that happening was just something I'll never forget. Sure. And I think that because of that experience, it was probably something that whether you want it to or not, and it doesn't seem like you do, but even if you did, you can't leave baseball behind now, right? Like it's just a part of who you are because it was part of your childhood. And then it was part of that, those formative years, like when you're a young adult and you're trying to figure yourself out and baseball was always there. So I I imagine it'd be something that would be very difficult to leave behind. Oh yeah. Um, It's, it's here for good. I mean, even when, even when baseball has to leave, us (laughs) we're obviously not leaving it so (laughs) it's been interesting to see people sharing stories and it's been fun listening to some um some older games like my boyfriend and I just the one day the sun was out here we went out in the backyard and had a game of catch and listened to Matt Cain's perfect game um the broadcast for that and 
it's just so fun, you know, to kind of relive the feelings and hear it all again. And it's interesting to see what people are doing to sort of keep it, keep it alive while we miss it. So yeah, absolutely. It's not, it's not, it it will be back just a matter of when. So until then, I guess we just have to be patient, which for you and I, that's probably a difficult thing to do. (laughs) (laughs) Put it this way. I've just been keeping myself really busy. So I don't think about it. Well, you certainly had something pretty big that had been keeping you busy and I'm sure is still keeping you busy writing a book is one part of the equation, but once it goes live and you have to market and do all this fun stuff to get people to know about it so you can make some money, hopefully, although that's not the only goal, but it's it's part of it. And you have authored the book, The Incredible Women of the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. This is really incredible. And Anika, you were nice enough to send over not just an advanced copy for me to have, but a bunch of other information that had just some really interesting tidbits and facts and things that I never knew about. Obviously, I wasn't alive then. And and, uh, so I want to, I guess, start from the beginning of this project and just understand where the passion for this specific league came from and when you made the decision that you wanted to write this book. Yeah, well, uh, first of all, thank you. That's all very kind things to say. Um, and yeah, it's been a long, well, let's see. I The first contact I had with the wonderful Julia Patrick at Chronicle Books was a little over three years ago. So, um, oh, yeah. Over three years ago, so it's been it's been a while. But um, I had been doing baseball illustration and drawing, and you know, illustration of baseball stories for for several years beforehand. But just sort of had a moment where I realized that there were no women in any of <laughs> well, not no, but very few women in in my drawings and my work and the stories I was acquiring and illustrating didn't include women and the drawings um that I was doing at the ballpark which is another thing I do when I go to baseball games I I sketch rather than you know some people keep score and some people uh you know eat (laughs) I do that too but I also draw and a lot of my ballpark drawings you know there were some women fans around me in the stands but other than that you know drawing what was happening on the field and everything it just kind of all slowly built up into this realization and I just decided that I wanted to start looking for stories about women in baseball because I knew they existed um, just like they exist everywhere it's just that we aren't privileged enough to have them handed to us we have to dig for them so I started digging and I didn't have to dig too far before I came up with some really great uh, stories of some women who played in the All-American Girls League but the stories were so rich and fun and just exciting and funny and like amazing that I knew right away that I was onto something because there had to be more. And of course there are more and more and more beyond the women that played in this league, but for the purpose of a book, I had to stop somewhere and I really wanted to focus on this one thing because it is unique in that it is so far the only professional women's baseball league that has ever existed in this country, which is kind of crazy. But, um, so I chose to focus on that, but within that, there are so many incredible stories 
a lot of which did not make it into the book, which I can't wait to tell at some point. But at least we got enough in there to give people the idea of what this leak was about and how important it was and how great it was and what a great opportunity it was for these women and what they, you know, what they left behind for other women coming up behind them. Hey everyone, Christine here from Sweat with Stods, one of this show's sponsors. The Dynamic Leaders Podcast is here to help you be a better leader, and the best leaders take care of themselves both mentally and physically. I'm here to help on the physical side by making fitness accessible to everyone. As a certified personal trainer with years of experience coaching fitness classes, I've designed programs that can be followed at home and in the gym. These are intelligently structured programs, giving you a plan to follow to help you be successful. Build strength with my Get Strong at Home program, get quick results with Hit at Home 1 or 2, or work on your health outside of fitness with my Healthy Habits program. As a listener, you can get these programs at a discounted rate by entering code DYNAMIC at checkout. That's D-Y-N-A-M-I-C at checkout. So head on over to sweatwithstods.com, that's sweat with S-T-O-D-D-S.com, to take the next step toward achieving your health and fitness goals today. As you mentioned, the league is the only professional women's baseball league to ever exist here in America, but it was around for a pretty considerable amount of time, especially when you think about like all the men's leagues that have started up and folded after half a season, one season, something like that. The women's baseball league was around for 11 seasons before it folded in, I think it was 1954, correct? Correct. Yeah. So maybe you can help us answer this question. And I know there are definitely some particular reasons, but maybe you have a little bit more insight just because of the research that you had to do for this book. But do you think there was any one particular reason as to why there hasn't been a league since then, given the fact that it did survive? It survived not only for 11 seasons, it survived World War II and different things along the way as well, economical challenges. So is there a particular like baseball specific reason that the leagues or that a league hasn't come back since then? Or is it just because of, you know, we had to get title nine, we had to give equal opportunities to women and we're just building up to maybe that moment where something like that can happen now? Well, I think both. I think that we are finally building up to where something like that can happen now. It's an interesting thing because like you said, we, you know, Title IX came, you know, more than 20 years after the league folded. And Mm -hmm. it's an interesting, um, it's so interesting to me that the league lasted, like you said, 11 years at a very unlikely time. It survived all those things, as you're saying. And then the 1950s, where when the war ended, there was like such a push back to that sort of happy housewife um, domestic, you know, roles of women. Um, And it survived a lot of that. And, you know, it's just, um, it was like a far less likely time for something like that to exist than now, which is why it's all the more odd that, you know, we haven't seen anything since, but there was a, you know, uh, there's several reasons why it, it folded. It was sort of like a perfect storm. But as to why it hasn't started again, uh, there was a very interesting kind of pivotal moment around Title IX where a lawsuit was filed on, but there were several kind of little stories like this, but this one particular thing is um, that there was a lawsuit filed on behalf of, of a young girl who 
had joined her local little league team and was like the star of the team. She was a phenomenal ball player and the coach really didn't have any problem with it, but um, somehow word got to the organization heads and they essentially decided that the team in New Jersey was going to either have to revoke their charter, you know, if they wanted to keep her or they needed to kick her off of the team. And they chose to let her go maybe hesitantly. I don't know, but it started this sort of, um, it started a lawsuit and then it kind of snowballed into, you know, they literally really dug their heels in the ground. They, they didn't want to admit girls and there are all kinds of, if you look into the case, it's interesting. There are some really, really interesting arguments and they even had some doctors testifying as to like the bone structures of girls and that a ball hit in the chest area would cause breast cancer. And if a ball hit a girl in the face, her life would basically be over because then she'd be ugly. <laughs> it's like really painful to read these testimonies where you're like, wow, what? But as a solution, they established softball as a girl's sport because it was a way that they could avoid uh, further lawsuits because they the lawsuit essentially ruled in favor of this young girl who was then too old to play so it was kind of sad because she never got the chance to play but they developed this as sort of a a separate but equal kind of a thing so it kind of started there and then when you think about how girls channel into you know like they start playing when they're little and then that's the sport they're playing and what i hadn't realized in creating this book that i think a lot of people don't realize until now is how completely different they are as sports baseball and softball so softball is an incredible sport and these women playing on high school collegiate and um you know professional levels are amazing athletes and it's just i think the other terrible misconception is that softball is just girls baseball like it's somehow some way inferior to baseball it's not at all it's just they're just two completely different sports and so when you're asking a girl what they want to do, it kind of doesn't matter if there's only one opportunity. So softball grows and baseball experiences like an arrested development among girls. And then, you know, you can go to high school and try to be the only girl on the boys team, or you can play with all the other girls and then you can have a chance at a scholarship. And, you know, so there really hasn't been a funnel for girls to play um, as they turn, as they grow into women. So uh, it was just sort of set up that way. And once it, once it became established, it's just hard to break that cycle. There are a lot more opportunities now and a lot, a lot of great organizations that are creating those opportunities. And I think we do have a chance to see it happen again. It's so interesting. And I think everything you just outlined tells why this story is so compelling and why people should read your book. And I don't want to give away all the stories on this podcast, because I do want people to pick up this book and read it and support you in any way that we can. But I do have one little piece that I picked out that I'd like to talk about and (laughs) just get your opinion on it yourself being a woman. (laughs) So here's, here's, we'll go with it this way. Players that were selected for the league largely were selected based on talent, but part of it was based on were they going to 
quote unquote look good, I guess for lack of a better phrase. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was the part about taking like a charm course and getting beauty guides and makeup kits and learning how to sit properly in the dugout. I mean, just I'm laughing talking about it because it sounds so <laughs> silly. But to your point earlier, like especially once we got back to the 1950s and the war efforts kind of fell off a little bit, it was time to go back to some of that more traditional how a woman is supposed to act in the household. She's definitely not supposed to be a baseball player. So how do we make her more womanly on a baseball field? Sounds counterintuitive, but what's your whole opinion? Like how, how weird was it to write that part and tell that part of the story? Well, um, you know, yeah, the more, the more I found in terms of like articles, I think that the, the tricky part was finding articles that, you know, reading these articles and the way that they talked about the women, especially in the beginning, I think once a lot of these people realized how athletic and competitive these women were and that they were real baseball players, um, these sort of novelty columns uh, tapered off and then they were focused more on how well they could play. But really, I mean, even national news pieces, even a piece in Life magazine, for example, um, you know, you could look through old magazines from the same years. Uh, I actually have some like old sports illustrated magazines and stuff. And there's like a whole profile on the Cleveland Indians and they're talking about players and there isn't a single comment about what these guys look like. Like Yogi Berra looks stunning in his tight white undershirt (laughs) with his, you know, it's like, what? It doesn't even occur to anybody. So even in the articles that, that do talk about how, you know, gee whiz, these girls can really play they still mention, you know, like, like Dorothy Kamenchek was scouted by major league ball clubs. And there was a lot of talk about her potentially being the first woman to actually play in organized major league baseball. But all the articles that talk about it say, you know, this, this pretty and husky Norwood, Ohio blonde, you know, it's like, <laughs> you never see that in any sort of men's uh, baseball articles, but as weird as it is, I think it's really important for people and women today to remember, um, A, the time that, you know, times have changed and this was, this was a different time. But this was also a time when if that was not uh, a facet of this league, it probably wouldn't have happened. With women joining factory workforce and, and you know, joining the workforce in general and filling male roles and then women in their own capacity of being able to serve their country in the military. There was sort of this societal worry about the masculinization of women and lesbianism and, um, you know, all kinds of things that were almost like mass hysteria, paranoia level of just women are going to be masculine. And then what, like then all of humanity is going to stop because they're going to stop having babies or I don't know what they thought, but (laughs) point was that it was a fear So in order to sell it, it had to be extremely feminine looking because nothing about the women and how they played was feminine. They were not playing like girls, so to speak, quote unquote. So um, it was very important that they appear as though they could just step out of their uniform and bake you a pie, I guess. I don't know. So I think it's important to remember that without that, this wouldn't have happened. And without this happening, then what? It's kind of, and a lot of these women never even thought about it when they were experienced, you know, when they were in the experience, they just, to them, it was, it was a matter of whether or not you get to play baseball and be paid for it and travel the country. And so 
most of them were like, well, yeah, the skirt was inconvenient and it sucked to play in because you're sliding and you've got these big bruises and strawberries on your hips and you're trying to feel the grounder and your skirt flies up in your face. And <laughs> so it was impractical. Sure. But they all realized that it was part of it. And, you know, if I, if I want you either one player was even quoted as saying you either wear the skirt or you didn't. And if you didn't, you were going home and I sure as heck wasn't going to go home. So, um, you know, it afforded these women this amazing opportunity that was very, so while it was archaic in its, you know, visual conception, it was very progressive in execution. And these women earned salaries that gave them access to higher education and then higher positions in the workforce. And uh, they went on to do incredible things after the league. And then they also set examples for young girls. There's you know, thousands of little girls that grew up in the Midwest going to watch these women play. Thousands of little boys who saw women playing amazing baseball, men and women alike. Um, it did incredible things that I think only helped advance things like Title IX happening. But um, yeah, it's it's weird to look back on now. And I've I've had several comments from other women. Um, one woman. I, th I think it's so interesting and I'm not offended by it, but I find it really interesting. This one woman wrote a review of the book on one of the websites where you, you get an advanced copy and you, in exchange for a review. And she said she couldn't decide whether to be delighted or offended that these women had been reduced to cartoons. And she would have liked to have read more about how they felt about men ruling their lives and being forced to wear skirts and, the way she presented it, I was like, God, she, I think she has the wrong idea that she thinks these women are just like imprisoned for 12 years. <laughs> and, um, you know, I understand that. And, but that, but if we're looking at it from the filter of today, I can see how we could say that if that were happening today, but I think it's more to me, the, the legacy and the takeaway is what these women did despite having to keep lipstick on and wearing skirts. Um, not that I, I think you're almost reducing them to the uh, oppressive patriarchal factors that be by focusing on those things. Um, yeah, they're important things, but um, I think those are not necessarily the most important aspects of this story and the legacy of these women. So great. And again, I've, said it's compelling. It's incredible. There's just so many different aspects to this story that I really encourage people to read this book. And so you've got this really great, compelling plot in the story that comes of it. But one of the things I was really impressed with as well is the foreword of this book is written by Jean Afterman, who is the assistant general manager for the New York Yankees. And she's one of the most prominent women in baseball. She wanted big award last year, the year before 2018 or 2019, I can't remember, in baseball for being executive of the year. Just a really incredible person. How did you get her on board for this project? Well, first of all, I can't even say enough about Jean Afterman. She is one of the most incredible women I know. And also part of the side, of, side effect, is that a right term, of, of writing this book that when I entered into writing this book, you know, most of my role models in life, um, my heroes and my mentors have all been men, which is great. There's, uh, you know, nothing wrong with that. But I, I am at an age where in entering into this, I have 
you know, and having to reach out to people for help with research or information they have or interviews of these other women or family members or, or just even in the publicity and marketing aspect where I'm having to reach out to baseball organizations along the way. Uh, and then the women I interviewed for the afterward, I have found this incredibly supportive and amazing community of women that um, as, as a source of strength and information and empowerment that I never had before. Um, so it's really exciting and just so rewarding for me individually to have come into this just through this project. And I, it's really important. <laughs> I, you know, I never really, I just kind of thought like, well, it comes from where it comes from, but I didn't realize how important it is to have other women in your life, which is, which only enhanced the importance of this league and what it leaves behind and why it needs to happen again is that it's not just a matter of women getting to have these positions, but it is important for women to have that strength with other women. Um, you know, I, I just, I don't even know how to, if I'm expressing that right, but so meeting Jean is part of that. And she, um, is just such an inspiration and a role model to me because not only is she just like a total badass, but she's herself. She's very warm and very fun and funny herself and um, just a delightful person. And she doesn't embody that, that idea that we've sort of had impressed on us that if you're going to be a power player and if you're going to hold a high executive position as a woman, you need to be a bitch, quote unquote, you know, um, right. she, I, I have never been on the other side of negotiating with her for say like, uh, Hideki Matsui or something. So I don't know, <laughs> maybe she has that element to her, but I've never seen it. Somebody purchased a piece of my art for her as a gift and she took it upon herself to, um, visit my website and look at some of my other art, um, because I guess she, she liked it. And one interesting thing is that she grew up in the Bay Area and she was familiar with my grandfather and his columns. Uh, so that was kind of a fun serendipitous element to that. So um, she, I, I actually, I had never met her, but I opened my website orders. I fulfill my orders like once or twice a week, people purchasing art. And I opened it and I was like, oh my God, there was this very large order uh, from one person in New York City that was Jean Afterman and she very kindly purchased a lot of my art so I I reached out to her to thank her and we just kind of started uh, I guess like an email pen pal relationship and I was just so delighted by her because she we had like a very similar sense of humor and same appreciation for a lot of the same things and I came to learn that she is a like a near expert on art history. She did a lot of acting for a while. She has all these other interests outside of just business and baseball. And so I, I really identified with that and really love that about her, that she's a multifaceted person with multiple interests. Um, and this is just one thing that she's really good at. So, uh, so she was just kind of a natural pick for me. I just thought who better to write about something like this than someone who has followed directly in these footsteps and whose career is sort of partially thanks to what these women did. And then she has a good bird's eye view of what's coming next. And uh, so I thought she could give a lot of insight into the, the past, present, and future of women in baseball. 
That is so cool. And I can't believe, well, I can believe, but it just brings us back to what you were talking about earlier in the conversation about using your voice, that you used your voice through your art and what you were drawing and illustrating. And Gene Affman sees that, is inspired by it, wants to purchase your work, and then you develop a relationship. Like that's that's an incredible story for lack of a better word but you just it just goes to show you that like if you really put yourself out there and you lean into it like some amazing things like that can happen yeah absolutely and that's you know that is certainly one of the bigger things that have happened but as i said just this process of really going all in into this project and just like you said leaning into it um the things that have come about the weird things that have happened in the last five years that I swear to God, if my grandpa were alive, he'd just be like shaking his head and laughing. You can only laugh. Some things that have happened just since I really started listening to my own voice and following it and, and expressing it through my art. It's, uh, I don't even know how to describe it without sounding like, like a weird cosmic, like pull out the tarot cards kind of a thing. But at the same time, which is fine. If you believe in that, awesome. And actually speaking of good artwork, there's some beautiful tarot artwork out there. But uh, it, it's just, it is testament to that, that really, truly, it's like you, you set your feet on your path and then you start walking and all the things that are supposed to be on that path start making themselves clear to you. And it's, I mean, it's just mind blowing the way that some things have come about. And I just think, what are the chances? And even with this weird crisis we're in, there's nothing good about it. There's nothing inherently beneficial, but there have been a few things that have come up where I just think, well, okay, if I could just, I'll just keep doing what I'm doing and being myself and rolling with it and just things kind of pop up and it's, um, I, I almost challenge anybody to just go with it because I think a lot of people are not only afraid of failure, but also afraid of the end result. If it's something that they really love doing for a while, I really struggled with just doing what I really love because it felt like I was cheating. <laughs> it's kind of like wearing your pajamas all day. Like <laughs> I, I need to be doing something where this, it can't just be this easy. It can't just be this fun. But if it's, if it is, then that means you're going to be good at it. And that means people are going to, feel that coming through your work and people will respond. It just sort of sets this chain reaction in motion. That's hard to describe, but by my own personal experience, I could swear by it. I feel like if you have this weird thing you've always wanted to do and you just love it more than anything else, I would challenge anybody to just go all in for just give yourself like three months and just go all in and try it. And I feel like you'd be pretty surprised what happens. I love it. And I, hope people take you up on that challenge because I think you're right. You do find out so much more about yourself and probably find a lot of happiness in that challenge too, which can be really powerful and really help you along (laughs) on the journey as well too. So Anika, if people want to follow along with your journey more and people want to find the book, don't worry if you can't remember everything right now, because I'm going to throw it all in the show notes, but where can people find all, all of this? Yeah, well, let's see. Um, you can find Gene Afterman at the Yankees games when they start. <laughs> uh, hopefully, let's hope that happens. And then, uh, as far as the book, the book can be um, can be found anywhere where books are sold, online or otherwise. Um, 
I know a lot of local independent bookstores right now are taking orders by phone and will deliver it to your car or your trunk if you want a completely contactless uh, interaction, which is really cool. And I think it's important to support them right now. If you also think it's important to support me for some weird reason, <laughs> you can order the book on my website. I'm selling signed copies on my website, as well as gift packs that include a signed copy of the book with uh, archival prints featuring illustrations and quotes from the book. Those are limited to a certain amount, but I will be making more illustrations available uh, in the form of prints and possibly other things um, in the near future. So cool. And like I said, I will throw all that information into the show notes and we'll throw people your way. And Anika, before I let you go, the show is called Dynamic Leaders and you have showcased your own leadership and the way that you've conducted yourself throughout the course of your journey into getting to where you are today. And you've talked about some really powerful leaders in your life, whether it was your grandparents, specifically your grandfather and Gene Afterman. But I'm just wondering if there's anyone that you want to give a quick shout out to. I usually like to give my guests an opportunity to shout out somebody who's been influential from either a leadership perspective or just in general in their own life. Sure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, good. I'm grateful you gave me this opportunity. Thank you, because I would love to give a shout out to Donna Cohen. She is my legal counsel and business advisor, uh, who I also met through my artwork at Sabre. She's another one of those serendipitous stories. If there was a Venn diagram of the perfect person to be working with, she would be that sweet spot in the middle (laughs) because she is an amazing lawyer and business counsel. She's also very warm, very loving, very considerate, uh, very perceptive, but she's also, um, a great leader in baseball. She is a great advocate for artists and women in sports. And uh, she is a great representative for women in baseball. She's one of the founders of the first women's fantasy camp through major league baseball with the Boston Red Sox. Uh, And she's just an incredible leader with incredible traits and skills for leadership that are the kind of leader that if I were going to be leading anything, I would want to be like Donna. I want to be like Donna when I grow up. Oh, wow. That is an amazing way to end this conversation with that shout out to Donna and people seriously go find this book at your local bookstores or online, whatever you feel most inclined to do, go buy it. You'll be happy you did. And Anika, again, I just can't thank you enough for sharing your time today and telling your story and sharing all you did about your projects. And it's just been a real blast for me being a huge baseball fan and nerd myself to be able to connect and do this with you. Oh, thank you so much. It's been so much fun talking with you. And we made it through without a tornado. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we did. We did. We're, we're good to go. <laughs> thank you so much, Bob. 